Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I recently organised an epic 100-year reunion photo shoot at the Roy E. Disney Studio, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm running all over the place, trying to convince my nearest and dearest that the lost city of Atlantis really does exist, but without any proof to back it up. Thankfully, I'm joined by a professor who knows far more than me and can light the way to this epic underwater kingdom, and I know for a fact that he's excellent at speaking gibberish. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, we're back. We had a little break post-Disney 100. Did you recover from our three-episode special bonus miniseries? Have you have you recovered from that? Only just about. And then it was immediately Atlantis time. <laughs> an Atlantis-heavy time. I mean, yeah, we've taken a bit longer to get around to recording this episode, but that just means more time for me to swim around in, in the waters of Atlantis and the history of Atlantis as a concept and all the various weirdos who have try to put it forward as an actual thing that exists all of that good stuff excellent so thankfully you've had a lot of time to research this to dive deep into the myths of atlantis but for this episode i'm thrilled to say we're also joined by a very special guest she's an acclaimed author behind the novel butterfly fish and short story collections speak giganticular and nudie branch she won the ako kane prize for african writing the betty trask award and has been awarded an MBE for services to literature. And right now, she's curating the Black to the Future Festival, an Afrofuturist celebration of outstanding black artists. That is an incredibly impressive resume, so we are absolutely thrilled to welcome to the podcast, Irenison Okoje. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thank you. Well, even better now, actually. Thank you so much for having me on. I always feel like an imposter <laughs> on these occasions. So um, no, I'm really, I'm really chuffed to be joining you guys to talk about this animation film, which, which was brilliant in my eyes. So yeah, this is going to be fun. Excellent. Yeah, it's amazing that you've found time among all of that to come and chat to us about Disney for the next hour and a half. We're, we're thrilled to have you here. You have so much stuff going on at the moment. What, what, what are you doing here with us? <laughs> How have you found your way here? Because <laughs> it's you guys. <laughs> and because I saw you in conversation at the BFI and I just loved your dynamic and chemistry and just listening to you guys talk about Disney films. It was really inspiring. I was there with Saraville, who I work with. We, we work on Black to the Future together, which is the Afrofuturist festival that I founded and curated, and it explores Afrofuturism, but 
looking at black artists across different mediums, so literature, film, dance, theatre, music, and really showcasing the breadth of black artistry and talent. Um, I very much feel that Afrofuturism is a term that people know, but it's it's kind of fluid to me. And I think there's really room to play with it and expand it a bit more. So it's really exciting to be in a position to launch this festival and just, yeah, showcase these brilliant voices. It's a real privilege for us. Amazing. I mean, for people who haven't heard that term before or who have heard the term before, but don't really know what it means, what would you say Afrofuturism is? What does it mean to you? So from my perspective, it's the intersection of science fiction and technology exploring stories of the black diaspora. I first discovered Afrofuturism reading Octavia Butler, who I would say is like the mother of Afrofuturism. Black science fiction writer, um, brilliant, brilliant writer. Also people like Samuel R. Delaney, also a science fiction writer, and musician Sun Ra, who did jazz, sort of sonic jazz, but not jazz as you know it. So those were like my entry points into the term Afrofuturism. But I think for a lot of people, it was when Black Panther came out and broke through in such a big way. Like that was really, I think, a modern, a very modern version of what Afrofuturism can look like, that it really came into the mainstream. So I think that really opened the doors in terms of taking it much more seriously and not just this thing that's on the fringes and on the side, but sort of bringing it much more into the centre. So yeah, that's been really exciting to do that and see, you know, how we at Black to the Future can explore what that looks like. Yeah. You're talking about Afrofuturism in music there. For me, my sort of introduction to that world and those ideas was Janelle Monet. her early albums really kind of leaning into those sci-fi references. And also Black Panther, I think, is a film that's going to come up when we talk about Atlantis. Both Black Panther and Wakanda Forever uh, feel like you could trace some DNA to what we see on the screen in uh, Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And great shout out, really, Janelle Monet as well. I should say we are going to be exploring her at the festival. Yes. <laughs> um, she's amazing in terms of the figure that really represents Afrofuturism. Like you said, you know, those incredible science fiction references in her, like, debut release. And also her albums are very sort of high concept, futuristic, just like pushing the boundaries. So she's a fantastic example of what Afrofuturism looks like. I feel like we bonded on Janelle Monáe back in uni, right? We did. Like that was a, an early like cultural touchstone that we shared. It was, I think we started uni like just after the Arc Android album came out, and it was like, oh, okay, another Janelle Monáe guy. That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> Arc Android was like the soundtrack to my dissertation, and I've just followed everything from there. Yeah, we bonded over Janelle early on, Sam and I. And an album that's influenced by Disney. Obviously, there's the song Wonderland. I think we talked about this when we talked about Alice in Wonderland. Yes. But the, the choir on that album, I think she said it was inspired by like the Disney choir on those like 1950s releases like Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. That's amazing. Disney connects everyone. <laughs> it's <laughs> impossible to escape. It's impossible to escape. No, that's so lovely to know. Well, before we ask you about your history with Disney or Renison, uh, tell us a bit more about the Black to the Future Festival. Like, Where is this all going down? What, what sort of events are you putting on for this festival? We have events across different mediums, really. Literature, film, music. Our launch event was Neptune Frost um, at the Garden Cinema, which is by a director called Saul Williams, who's a former poet. It's such a weird film, <laughs> Afrofuturistic, but it's also yeah, exploring sort of black agency and black freedom within that. 
that was really great to showcase and have a discussion, a Q&A post that. And a lot of things came up around that conversation. You know, people were saying, oh, we didn't know that black artists existed or produce films in this genre or, you know, this film made me think about electronic music in the 80s. So there were these lovely little connections that were being made, which was really great. And then we had genre marauders at the British Library, which was brilliant. So that was a panel of writers and game makers, just like demystifying things around being a black creator and what the processes look like. And talking about the current works that they're working on and just, I guess, really their journeys in the arts and the difficulties that they faced and the ways in which they've been supported. So that was really cool. And then we had a big party afterwards, really, which is Drexian Realms. And, you know, we had DJ Josie Rebel. It was like an electronic music night. People were in like fantastical costumes. And then we've got a couple of things coming up. We're screening Mami Wata by CJ Abassi, which is sort of futurist fable set in a matriarchal African village and it's about mermaids really and that's what what the term Mami Wata means it means mermaid in in Nigeria so we're screening that and then I'll be talking to CJ afterwards so we're super excited and we just sold that out amazing so I'm really chuffed about that and then we have the discussion with Janelle Monet around her aesthetics and you know her contributions to the culture as an Afrofuturist icon so She's not just a great musician, but she's also a brilliant actress as well. So her filmography is amazing. We're going to screen Hidden Figures, which is an important film. And then Sarah Ville and I, my creative director at Black to the Future, will be discussing the aesthetics of Janelle Monet. So that's really excited. And then we have actress Ajoa Ando doing our Kinetic Discourses strand. She's kicking that off with sci-fi editor Calla Singleton. And with that strand, we have people from different mediums just talking about process again having a conversation around what that looks like and it's a little bit like the guardian conversations where people from two different unexpected backgrounds would get together and have a conversation and just see what happens and that that might be a fun thing so yeah i feel like it's kind of an eclectic program and sarah and i've had a lot of fun putting it together so yeah we're excited amazing well yeah everyone should look up online and see the uh, future events that you've got coming up sam maybe we should head down to the uh, janelle monet event that sounds incredible absolutely of course among her many acting credits peg in the remake of lady and the tribe <laughs> it all comes full circle to <laughs> disney all comes back to disney i love that and you're absolutely welcome so please do come we'd love yeah. to have you there well, Irinison, before we crack on with talking about the film, I have to ask, what's your history with Disney movies? Which are the ones that you grew up watching? Do you remember seeing any in the cinema as a kid? Or what were the ones that you had on VHS back in the day? I think like most people, I have a connection to Disney. So there are a couple. I remember really loving The Lady in the Tramp, Cinderella, of course, yes. who doesn't love the tale of the poor girl that falls in love with the prince. I remember Dumbo, this very, very sympathetic elephant (laughs) that was having a hard time. So that really stayed with me. Pinocchio was another one. Mm -hmm. That's a classic. (laughs) I love that you're raising your (laughs) fist. Sam is a huge Pinocchio head. Oh, okay, good. I've won some points. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great film. It horrified me when we watched it for this podcast because it is so unrelentingly dark. It's very dark, but it's also quite touching as well. Yeah, yeah, I remember like crying watching that. (laughs) Me too, Renison, me too. (laughs) Yeah, Pinocchio made me cry. So yeah, those are the ones I remember. And then 
What else? Oh, yeah, I love ratatouille. Yes. Because I'm obsessed with food. Mm-hmm. Like anything around that. So this aspiring <laughs> mouse, I just thought it was so funny, like the context of it. And it was slightly wacky as well. So yeah, that is a favourite yeah. of mine. The the listeners haven't heard this yet, but when Sam and I went to Disneyland Paris earlier this year, we went and had dinner in the Ratatouille restaurant that they have in Disneyland Paris. We recorded some stuff from the Ratatouille restaurant. So that'll come out at some point for the listeners to enjoy. I love that. That's actually cool. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from the ones that you grew up with them, what are the films that mean a lot to you now from Disney? Are there any that you've seen in kind of more recent years or that you've seen as an adult that you were like wow this is really impressive yeah toy story kind of blew my mind Mm. i think that's one that really stays with me just the humanity and the dimension that those characters were given i really was struck by that at the time up as well was touching i thought that was really really moving and then turning red yeah like that's the beautiful transformative emotionally rich film those are the ones that i thought wow disney is really upping the ante in terms of what they're doing with storytelling so it's like having these emotional depths and these emotional psychologies and cartographies of these characters that can really speak to audiences so they're obviously not just thinking about younger audiences they're thinking about adult audiences too with the storytelling so i was really struck by that Yeah, amazing. I absolutely love Turning Red. That is a big Disneyversity favourite as well. But that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time we're heading down into the depths to uncover a long-lost civilization in 2001's Atlantis The Lost Empire. Okay then, Sam, these are the wilderness years. These are films that people might not have seen from the Disney catalogue. So for anyone who's fresh to this film, what is the plot? What is the story of Atlantis, The Lost Empire? This is a film about Milo Thatch, who is a young linguist and cartographer. He's both things, (laughs) very impressive, who dreams of finishing his grandfather's quest to find the mythical Atlantis. He's recruited by an eccentric millionaire to join a crew of misfits on an expedition to find the lost city, where he discovers an ancient civilization and falls in love with their princess Kida, and together they must stop the mission's evil commander Rourke, slight spoiler, from plundering the Atlanteans' magical power source. Right, you say slight spoiler, we'll get there. Rourke clocked him straight away. He's the bad guy. Look at him, he looks the bad guy through and through. So, where do the Atlantis myths come from? Because I realised watching this, I was like, I have I have no idea where these myths come from. If you told me that it was like, oh, the ancient Greeks came up with them, I would absolutely believe that. At the same time, if you were like, oh, it's an H.G. Wells thing, I would absolutely believe that too. Where Where does this story even vaguely come from? It was those ancient Greeks, and there's a clue in this film at the start, it opens with a quote from Plato um, describing the fall of Atlantis, and the earliest known mentions of Atlantis are in Plato's philosophical writings, and he describes it as this utopian island nation that ruled most of the world with its navy, and when it overreached by trying to conquer Athens, which is like the god's favourite city, the god sunk it beneath the ocean, and basically Plato was using it as a fable warning nation states against this like empirical hubris right don't try and conquer people especially don't try and conquer athens because if you conquer too many people the gods are going to have you and this was contrasted with athens which is the model of the perfect society that that plato said that other city states should aspire to so going way back 
really Plato is using this as a rhetorical device. It's not necessarily something that he was saying actually existed. This was a place where, you know, people actually once lived that was sunk beneath the sea. But not long afterwards, this rhetorical meaning and like the fictionness of the city became lost and other ancient philosophers and writers would start to debate whether this was an actual historical island or whether or not Plato had just invented it. And by the time you get to the 1600s, you start to get a lot of Western Europeans making quite serious cases for the existence of Atlantis and trying to guess where it was and who lived there, what society was like, whether or not they had death rays or psychic powers and things like that. So you have Europeans not only completely missing the context of like, hey, maybe let's not like colonize places and just going like wait there's a there's a place called atlantis let's go there (laughs) they've completely missed the point right and it does become tied in with the colonial history of western europe because during the 1600s when europeans are becoming fascinated with the new world they start to form connections between Plato's Atlantis and the Americas. Because one of the only real geographic clues that he gives about where Atlantis is, is it's in the Atlantic Ocean, hence the name. So when the Europeans actually came across this enormous mass of land on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, it was like, oh man, maybe there's some connection with Atlantis here. Maybe this is Atlantis. Maybe Atlantis used to be part of this landmass. So... Mayan and Aztec structures that were found in the Americas were believed by some to be the vestiges of Atlantean architecture, which I think is linked into racist assumptions around like the indigenous people of the New World, thinking, oh, well, they couldn't have built this themselves. This was obviously built by some much more advanced society, which has sunk beneath the ocean and just left these ruins behind. Right. So there's plenty, plenty to get into there and how that's sort of adapted to a Disney film. When does it come about that Disney wants to make an Atlantis movie? Is this something that's been knocking around in the studio for for a while at this point? And when does it come up that Disney effectively want to make a sci-fi film? Have we done anything on the podcast yet that you could really call sci-fi? Yeah, not really. This is kind of new territory for them. And it was deliberately decided that this was going to be something new. This was going to be a project that takes the studio in a different direction. So it was produced by Don Hahn and directed by Trousdale and Wise, which are the team from Beauty and the Beast, the team from Hunchback of Notre Dame. And they wanted to keep that whole team together because those movies, you know, Hunchback wasn't as big financially, but we both loved it. Those movies worked really well. They had a really strong tone and aesthetic to them. So they wanted to keep that team together and they also wanted to move away from the Renaissance like fairy tale musical formula, which it started to become still. You'd started to see diminishing returns at the box office. So they said, they put it in these terms, we want to make an Adventureland movie rather than a Fantasyland movie. So they're putting it in terms of Disneyland, right? So Fantasyland traditionally in Disneyland is where the characters from all of Walt's animated movies live, but they want to make a movie set in Adventureland based on all of these like older boys on adventure stories, like the work of Robert Louis Stevenson and, and Jules Verne and people like that. To the extent that the crew wore t-shirts that read, fewer songs, more explosions. <laughs> it was a very deliberate move away from what Disney had done and into a, a different, more action-oriented space. I don't want to preempt the conversation on the film itself, but my note for this might have been, couple of songs? Maybe, maybe give us a couple of songs? <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with the explosions, but I like, you know, I like I like a couple of songs in these films, uh, especially so directors, as you say, you've got Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale who are back, who, you know, Beauty and the Beast, absolute banger. We said it was our favorite film from the Renaissance. 
Hunchback of Notre Dame also absolutely pops off in the music department. Maybe like the undersung film of the Renaissance, maybe not literally because there is a lot of singing. It's a shame that they're not doing music here, but they are pushing the envelope visually on this. It felt a bit like Tarzan to me, but like pushed to the next dimension. What's happening visually in this film? Right, so again, we've got use of that deep canvas software that allows them to take 3D models and paint over them almost to make them fit with the 2D world. And there's some really impressive shots here with computer animation. And this is obviously a process that is eventually just going to fall completely by the wayside by the time we get to Disney making fully computer animated films in a few years. So it's good to have movies like this and like Tarzan, which make excellent use of it. But I also wanted to point out that the character and background designs here are really unique in terms of Disney as well. And that's because they enlisted a bit like they did with Gerald Scarf on Hercules an outside artist and outside cartoonist to contribute to those designs and that was uh, Mike Mignola from Hellboy. Yes that really comes through again we'll get it there in the film itself but a lot of that very nuts and bolts like physically in the designs and some of the elements that feel a bit like 1940s-ish, the like wartime stuff of Hellboy, it feels very Mike Mignola. It did not surprise me when I saw that name come up in the credits. Right, yeah. So the, the subject matter of this and of Mignola's work, particularly on Hellboy, there's a lot of crossover there with this like steampunk, diesel punk setting. But then in terms of the designs, it's the characters and the settings are very flat and graphic, like a lot of Mignola's work is. And the background artists said that this style dictated that we use restraint rather than putting loads of detail and rendering into our backgrounds. Lisa Keane, a background artist, said that Mignola's graphic style meant we had to go back to the basics of our training and rediscover how important lighting patterns and shadows are to a scene and to describe and form and movement. And again, the use of light and shadow here is really effective, I think. And those simplified backgrounds even though they are less detailed, are some of the best to look out of any of the Disney films that we've seen recently. Well, I think we've discussed the background, literally, enough. Let's get on to the film itself. Is everyone ready to dive down to Atlantis? Should we go? Yeah, let's do yes, it. Yes, please. Let's go. As we said then, this is the first sci-fi animated Disney film. It's a genre they haven't really gone to before in these films. We haven't really discussed it on the podcast before, so this feels very fresh and new. And it feels like the film wastes absolutely no time in putting those cards up front and being like, this is a full-on bioluminescent sci-fi film with ships flying everywhere, with glowing blue lights, with all sorts of crazy stuff unfolding on the screen. It's such an exciting opener. Were you guys pulled in by the all-action opening of Atlantis? I loved it. I was immediately drawn in because it starts in conflict, right? We're literally seeing the fall of Atlantis happening. And like you said, you've got all these visually really striking things occurring, like explosions, people running for shelter, people being warned. Kidda, who is obviously a a big protagonist in this, we see her as a child and her response to what's happening. And immediately I feel like it anchors the film really well. And you immediately get a sense of the history of Atlantis in literally a couple of minutes. I think it does that so, so well because normally films lead up to what the conflict is. I could be wrong about this, but maybe even a lot of Disney films. So it felt kind of 
boundary breaking in a way for me, that opener. I loved it. I was like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> it was a lot for the eyes to take in, but in a really interesting way. I thought it was visually very dynamic. I don't know the technical terms for that in animation, but I was hooked. I was like, okay, I'm in. Because normally, you know, you, we expect Disney movies to be quite twee and quite sweet and quite saccharine. But this was like, bam, there's drama, <laughs> there's darkness. You know, you're sort of immediately invested. So, so I re- yeah, I really like the opener. Yeah, it's immediately nailing its colours to the mass and saying, this is not a fairy tale, this is not a musical, this is action-packed, we're in this sci-fi city. I mean, we know we're in Atlantis because that's the title of the movie, but we don't really know what to expect from Atlantis. Like, a lot of earlier depictions of Atlantis have relied heavily on, like, Greek architectural inspiration because that's where the story came from, was ancient Greece. But here we've got a version which I think is deliberately not Greek and instead it's bringing in architectural influences from all over the world. Uh, Certainly Mesoamerica, just as those Renaissance-era writers on Atlantis linked it with Mesoamerica. But we've also got, I think, influences from South Asia and then some visual nods to African culture as well, especially in terms of the costumes of the characters. So immediately we're given this version of Atlantis which isn't really like anything we've seen before. And all of these other sci-fi elements, in particular the vehicles, which even before Atlantis sinks beneath the ocean are based on fish, which is interesting. <laughs> so there's it's obviously a... I mean, wow, that's blown my mind, actually. Yeah. <laughs> They're an island. They're surrounded by water, I guess. So it must, it must be a big part of who they are before they even sink. But yeah, it's like, did they know? They were asking for it, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, that's absolutely... How dare you make that assumption? <laughs> but yeah, and also, so not only are we dropped directly into this world of Atlantis with all of this stuff going on, so you can pick up on loads of different aspects of Atlantean culture just by seeing how the city behaves in this moment of crisis. But it is... A moment of crisis. It's an, it's an action scene and it quite efficiently establishes what the city is, who our main Atlantean characters are, Kidda and her father, and sort of in absence for most of the movie, her mother. And it also, of course, performs the narrative function of telling us how Atlantis sank in the first place. Or does it? There's some reveals to do with that later on, but we see all that happen. And there's a version of this movie that opens with Milo and we just build to Atlantis, as you were saying, Arenison. And we discover Atlantis as Milo does. But I think it's almost more exciting for us because we know what's in store for them. Uh, We know what kinds of dangers might await for them under the water as well because of this opening sequence. The thing this sequence reminded me most of, and I know I could say this about pretty much anything I watch, Sam, is it felt so Star Wars to me. It felt like very prequel era Star Wars it looked like almost Naboo or or one of those planets from the prequels where it's like it's bright and it's colorful but you have these super dynamic fast flying machines almost the sort of visual language of the pod race sequence from episode one so I mean immediately I'm hooked as soon as I feel that Star Wars feeling I am I'm there I'm hooked I'm in And yeah, so it gives you this kind of very different feeling for a Disney movie. You can't say, oh, I'm getting some Star Wars feelings about most of the films that we've watched so far. And visually as well, you were saying before we got into the main film discussion that the kind of background art style of this is really different. The thing that it reminded me of, in the simplicity, in a way, of some of those background designs, was the Zelda game The Wind Waker 
where it's playing with this like cell shaded art style and these very crisp like the blue of the sky above Atlantis is the bluest blue you've ever seen. The land is flourishing. You have these very lovely, like, even the stone textures feel warm. And that cartoonish, but warm, but futuristic, but kind of ancient feeling is what I get when I play The Wind Waker. I just wanted to throw that in there, Sam, because I know that you love a bit of Zelda. I love a bit of The Wind Waker. Maybe the best one. Mm-hmm. Right. Who's to say? This isn't a Zelda podcast. If anyone wants to invite me onto a Zelda podcast, please do. But uh, yeah, I can see that. It's just the atmosphere of um, seafaring in its most pleasurable form. It's like, oh, the the, the beauty of the ocean and the beauty of these island nations, which obviously is going to be inverted as... Atlantis is cast beneath the sea, and and for most of the rest of the movie, we're in a much darker palette with these very deep blues. What did you guys think of the sequence where Atlantis sinks? Because that, to me, I was like, wow, this is visually huge. That shot of all the waves crashing in? Yeah, it it was really dynamic. It was... Yeah, I couldn't take my eyes off the screen, actually. And and watching that that opening sequence, funny you were talking about Star Wars... I was also recalling like big 80s adventure films, uh, you know, like Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, films like that and those sort of references. But yeah, I loved it because it's Atlantis and it's supposed to be (laughs) under the sea, like to physically see that happening, I thought was very powerful. You know, so we're not taking immediately under, we see that fall happen, which is quite amazing, really, and dark, (laughs) but also beautiful. You know, you were talking about the sort of utopia that Atlantis is, the land, um, the sense of it being majestic. And even, I have to say, even within that opening scene, you feel that, you know, you feel like that scope of it, that glory of it in its original form. Obviously, later in the film, it feels a, a lot darker and more ruinous. But that opening scene, it's just like, wow, this is really a, an ancient civilization. And it's funny you mentioned the Mayan references, African references. I was thinking the same thing, looking at the costuming of the because I was like, oh, I feel like there's several references going on here. And it's so brilliant the way Disney does that, that it's not just the one thing. You know, it's quite layered in terms of its referencing. So yeah, I find that quite stimulating and it just feels like a real treat because you know this is going to be an epic watch and that's what I'm expecting. From that opening, you're expecting a certain level of storytelling and narrative arc around Atlantis. So I feel like they really pulled the big guns out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, literally and metaphorically. I mean, we're going to talk about this as a sci-fi film, but I think you're absolutely right. This being... An adventure movie, first and foremost, is also the kind of thing that is on its mind. So, like the film itself, we're going to come back to Atlantis. But, for now, let's move on to Milo. It feels like this opening is like, guys, we're going to get to Atlantis eventually. Here's a little bit of Atlantis up front. We're going to be back here. But now we have to, like, ground you with our lead character. We need to spend some time with a skinny, geeky academic. (laughs) As everyone who listens to this podcast has chosen to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If you and I are the Milos in this situation, Sam, especially you, the academic, what did you guys make of Milo as a character? Do we like Milo? Sam is the academic. Is he a good representative of academia? I mean, kinda, yeah. That's that's how I feel. Well, it's it is quite triggering to watch him try and give this like lecture up top to this completely inattentive audience 
unresponsive audience, but then it turns out that there weren't real people, there were just like skeletons in hats <laughs> that he gathered up from a museum. And how I wish that I could deliver most of my lectures to skeletons in hats. <laughs> You've never given a lecture to skeletons in hats? Not yet. No, but it's it, it's on the bucket list. Right. Yeah, he's an interesting character because I think he is quite nerdy in quite a believable way. Although he can also, I think, be a little bit smarmy and a little bit self-satisfying. And unfortunately, I think some of that comes through in his interactions with Kida, which we'll get to. It's Michael J. Fox, right? So it's always going to be cool. There's always going to be a coolness to him. There's always going to be almost an aspirational quality to him because of, of how inherently cool the voice of Michael J. Fox is. Michael J. Fox, a man who was asked to star in this and another big budget animated sci-fi movie, Titan A.E., from Don Bluth, and he asked his son which idea he preferred. Uh, his son apparently said Atlantis, and both of those movies bombed terribly, although Titan A.A. <laughs> slightly more so than Atlantis. Right. So maybe if Michael J. Fox had been in that movie as well, it would have brought them up to parity a bit. Oh, I love Michael J. Fox so much. It's like Realising that it was his voice was like, of course it is. Of course this is Marty McFly. That is adding, as Arenison said, to the 80s adventure feeling. Yeah, 100%. And you literally just took the words out of my mouth in regards to Michael J. Fox. I could listen to him do anything because his voice is so expressive. And like you said, he is just really inherently dynamic and cool. So I knew actually instinctively listening to this character that, that it was him. I think Milo is earnest. I think he's very well-intentioned. I think he's quite big-hearted and he's obviously ambitious because we know that his father started the expedition and didn't see it through completely, but was able to like get this journal. So the mystery of Atlantis is in this journal. So there's something about familial legacy, I think, that really makes us have compassion for Milo as a character. But you're right, in his interactions with Kidder at times, it's a bit like, oh God, <laughs> some, some of the knowing comments can be a little bit smug. Like you said, like I was chuckling away, like obviously that's deliberate. You know, they've written him that way. You know, So you get to see these different sides to him. But overall, I, I really like the character. Like you said, it's Michael J. Fox. So it's hard not to like him because he just, has this inherent likability about him but yeah I think having said all this I think the character is quite complex I think Milo is a complex character and we see that through the arc of the film right because his motivations for discovering Atlantis are fairly self-centered as well right like Rourke and the mercenaries they're in it purely for the money they're in it purely for power and that isn't what it is for Milo but he has a vested interest in this because he wants to prove his grandfather right and when he is initially interacting with Kida and with the other Atlanteans, with her dad. All of his questions are about, it's not about like, who are you? What are you like? What are these people like? What's it like to live here? It's like, where's the power source? He's interested in the same thing that the villains are. It's just for different, slightly less selfish reasons, but it is still coming from this self-centered place. And he, like the other mercenary characters, has to learn to like appreciate Atlantis as a people, I think, and not just as this thing to be discovered. Yeah, he has a whole mix of almost contradictions in him, I'd say. He's an adventurer, but he also isn't the most adventurous person. Like, the, the whole, his dad has written a journal about this ancient thing and he's inherited it and now he's going to find that. Couldn't be more Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But he is not Indiana Jones, right? 
He isn't that adventurer guy, but he also does want to get out there. He reminded me a bit of Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Obviously, that is also a Trousdale and Wise movie, so there's a little bit of connective tissue there with the directors. But him at the start having this irrepressible thirst for knowledge and being surrounded by books and trinkets and things and being endlessly curious about those things kind of puts him in that mold and yet he also by the end of the film has to be more active he has to take a bit of that action role to fight back against Rourke and the other people on the expedition who will get there but aren't necessarily in it for the same reasons that he is as you say also he's a you know a bit annoying he needs to wind his neck in a bit (laughs) when he's talking to Kida so yeah he has all these different dimensions as a character And I think that's kind of really expressed in the way he physically moves. One of my favourite things in this film is the hand-drawn character animation. Because we have these stunning backgrounds, we have quite a lot of 3D in this film. That's something that we kind of really see encroaching into Disney at this point in time. But the character models, the character designs, are very traditional hand-drawn character animation and it looks beautiful they are incredibly expressive very snappy it's all in the line work you don't get lines when you have 3d characters but when you have 2d characters you have lines everywhere and you can use those lines to make characters act in super expressive ways and i felt that so much in milo Mm, and that's in contrast to a lot of the backgrounds in this as well which quite unusually for disney don't use lines to delineate space it's all flat shapes and colours overlaid on top of each other. So that's one of the reasons I really like the backgrounds and it does um, mean that the characters really stand out and you're paying attention to their lines and not getting caught up in the detail of the, of the entire image. But w- one more thing I want to say about Milo at the risk, the very real risk of completely derailing this podcast is <laughs> he uh, he is not a very good linguist. He is cracked up as this like great linguist. That's where he comes from. That's his field. And as an academic, I feel the need to point out, he's got this chalkboard behind him where he's saying, like, the reason why people haven't been able to find Atlantis is that they've translated this sentence that says it's off the coast of Ireland, and in fact what it says is off the coast of Iceland. And that should not be very difficult to translate because each Atlantean letter, one for one, corresponds with an English letter and there is a C in the phrase coast of Iceland, which already corresponds with what he has translated initially as an R in the word Ireland. Not a very good linguist. So, now, this was... <laughs> you're saying the first letter he translated, he could have just applied that later in the sentence. They would have been there years ago right. at this point. Well, he's the guy who eventually translated it correctly. But what I'm saying is a child could do that because it's there <laughs> in the sentence. And this was pointed out to me a few weeks ago by a Twitter user called Laura who I'm, I'm very grateful to if you're listening, because I'm not sure if I would have noticed it, but I'm not a linguist, okay? And he is. He should be picking up on these things. And this is a language, by the way. A lot of thought was put into this language. This language has its own article on Wikipedia. It was created for the film by a guy called Mark Ockrand, who also created Klingon for Star Trek. And he was inspired by Sumerian and indigenous American languages. And he came up with this really complex linguistic system, which... He even thought about how you would read it. You read it left to right for one line, and then the next line you read it right to left, so it flows like water. That's the idea. 
It like runs down almost like a snake. Really cool. Really smart. He, all smart. of the spoken dialogue is like perfectly mapped onto English. But in this scene with Coast of Iceland, what they've done is they've just, you know, when the filmmakers actually got around to using this really complex set of symbols and words that he come up with, it's just a one-to-one translation to English, right? The sentence Coast of Iceland, that's still in English. It just happens to have been written in this like one-to-one letter cipher. So I'm just saying if this guy creates this whole language for you, at least use it. Don't just use it like it's a child's cryptogram that just has a (laughs) one-to-one correspondence. So I'm I'm mad on behalf of this guy, whose name I can't even remember, Mark Ockrand, okay? (laughs) Shouts out to Mark Ockrand, the MVP of this film, underappreciated. Amazing. He'll be very happy about that shout-out. Yeah. (laughs) I definitely think he will. The other interesting thing about Milo that I thought is that he doesn't have much power in the beginning When we see him at the Smithsonian, he's quite a frustrated character. The gatekeepers are not interested. (laughs) They don't want to help him. They don't believe in this big ambition that he has. Yeah, I know he can be an annoying character, but it (laughs) it did make me have a little bit of compassion because I know what it's like. Having worked in the arts for a long time, (laughs) when you're trying to get projects, I could relate to that. A part of me was like, oh my God. You're trying to get projects off the ground and you need to get these gatekeepers on side and get them to fund it. And it's just so frustrating because they're just (laughs) shutting the doors in your face. I was like, oh my God, that resonated with me so much. Well, when I first saw this movie, I was like nine years old. We'll come out and I went to see it with my mom and she says, you know, Sam, I don't know if you noticed, but the hero in that movie was like a skinny little nerd with glasses, just like you. And I was like, wow, okay, man. That's like, first of all, a bit shady. Shade from your mom. (laughs) (laughs) But apart from that, wow, that is really inspirational. And obviously I haven't become a hero. I haven't discovered Atlantis, but I do this shit. Exactly. (laughs) I can be anything. You've discovered the movie Shrek. That I'm too scared to tell you, Sam, has already been discovered by millions of other people. Well, boy, did the makers of Atlantis know that. Come on to that. Right. So... Let's talk about the journey to Atlantis. Milo has been denied by the board members, who, again, are just brilliantly animated characters, super expressive in in the very bitchy way that they shut him down. But luckily, in swoops Mr. Whitmore, who has an incredible aquarium in his lair. Oh my god, I loved the aquarium. If I was crazy rich, I would get myself a big wall aquarium. I, I, I love that stuff. I love going to see the fish. So he sets up Milo on this expedition with a whole crew of characters that I am going to say they attempted to kind of create a cool ensemble for this film. Ultimately, though, for me, these characters aren't the most memorable. I don't even know their names. We have the Mole Man. Mole. His name is Mole. That is very helpful. We have the French guy whose personality is he's French. He's Italian. (laughs) (laughs) Is he French? Or Italian? Maul is French. Vinny is Italian. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, his personality, even though he's Italian, his personality still seems to be that he's French for some reason. All right, fair enough. I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> we have the Puerto Rican lady. We have 
blonde lady who looks like the Nazi again from The Last Crusade. As soon as I clocked her, I was like, yeah, you're not going to turn out to be good. You have Rourke, who, Sam, in the brief text discussion that we've had about this film, I was like, oh, I think the lady who looks like the Nazi from The Last Crusade is going to be evil. And I have a feeling that this Rourke guy maybe isn't having the best intentions either. And you pointed out, he is exactly like Miles Quaritch, the bad guy from Avatar, the like militaristic dude who clearly is there just to get the power source and use it for nefarious means so you have this whole ragtag bunch all going off to atlantis together do you guys i don't know enjoy these characters more than i did i I thought they were just perfectly fine but nothing more yeah i thought one or two of them were fun mole was I can see how he could annoy people, but I kind of liked him for comic relief. Just the sheer exaggeration of mm-hmm. his like physical movement entertained me. Um, and so that was quite nice. And then I think the lady lieutenant, who's like the second in command to Rourke, she sort of reminded me of a femme fatale from a, a film, 1940s film noir. Yeah, especially early on. <laughs> exactly, particularly early on, but like even more exaggerated. And I clocked too. I was like, uh, yeah, she's going to be evil. And also that Rourke would be evil. So some of it was like a bit obvious with a couple of the characters. The, the Puerto Rican lady, I like the fact that she was tomboyish. And there was an attempt to make her call, I thought, but she just needed a little bit more depth. It felt like they rushed it a little bit in terms of, you know, the band of characters. Yeah, certain tropes that we recognise, that they were offbeat, but I don't know how much newness they would bring into that because we recognise some of those tropes. And then there were a couple that, you know, were stand out. I like the lady announcer, the old miserable lady announcer with the cigarette permanently (laughs) lodged in her mouth. She's always, like, making calls to other people. She's, like, sort of half in the job. She's half (laughs) her mind is elsewhere. I love that. She's like, I'm doing this, but I could be doing something, you you know, that kind (laughs) of vibe. So I quite enjoyed her moments. But, yeah, it was a mixed bag for me with the characters. Like, a couple stood out, and then a couple a bit like, meh. Yeah, I mean, they've obviously made an attempt to make it quite multicultural as well, which for, like, a movie starring humans at Disney is quite rare. So I think this is, like the first animated latina character in a disney movie it's the first human black man in a disney movie in an animated disney movie yeah i noticed that i was like okay good shout out disney yeah it only took them until 2001 to get there (laughs) yeah (laughs) took them ages it's quite subtly done as well like he isn't characterized by his ethnicity neither is she like they are just characters that yeah. they aren't stereotypes to my eyes anyway certainly Maul is a stereotype <laughs> certainly Vinny is a stereotype <laughs> that can do that with the white characters i mean Maul is memorable simply for being as we see on disneyversity a truly disgusting little freak <laughs> He is a TDLF, for sure. Vinny, I think, gets a couple of my favourite lines in this. There's the bit where um, Milo is talking about how many hundreds of years it must have taken the Atlanteans to carve a statue, and then Vinny blows it up and he says, look, I made a bridge, it took me ten seconds. (laughs) And he also has the line later on when they're turning against Rourke, and he says, look, in the past, nobody got hurt. Well, maybe somebody got hurt, but nobody we knew. I think that's quite a good little... (laughs) gag as well so i like him for those lines but yeah it's not like a pixar level of ensemble i feel like at this point in time toy story and a bug's life pixar really mastered the art of the ensemble in animated movies and we have of course jim varney who plays slinky dog voicing kooky the chef in this so they try to port over some of that pixar magic maybe but yeah it's not quite on that level is it 
I mean, we get all these characters gathered together, and this film is really pacey. It takes a while to get to Atlantis proper. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But about 25 minutes in, we get to the point where, you know, they're near Atlantis. They've come out the other side of the water. You've had that great sequence with the Leviathan, the big sort of underwater action sequence, which, again, on my Star Wars Episode One thing, it's the whole, like, yeah. there's always a bigger fish scene from The Phantom Menace with Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm going to stop talking about Star Wars at some point, I promise you. You have this whole kind of great action sequence. And I was like, great, 25 minutes in. We're not quite at Atlantis yet, but we're nearly there. And it means that when we do arrive at Atlantis, in some ways, not that a huge amount of time has passed. And yet we are ready. We're ready to be in Atlantis and to kind of get to the place that the film is named after, after that really exciting tease in the opening of the film. So what were your guys' impressions when we finally got to Atlantis? We we touched on it earlier on, but what do you guys think of Atlantis as it is through most of the film when we reach it here? I would just like to say, first of all, I was not ready for Atlantis really? when, it, when it appears. I would have liked a little bit more time in the steampunk submarine fighting <laughs> giant monsters. Okay. That's what I'm after. Ben, if you want to keep talking about Star Wars, then I'm allowed to keep talking about old steampunk Disney movies <laughs> because that is what they are touching on here, right? It's 20,000 Leagues in the Sea. It's Island at the Top of the World. It's Jules Verne via Disney. And I love those movies, but they are old. We watched 20,000 Leagues in the Sea together recently and I, I think you enjoyed it but also noticeably old i think it's fair to say it is old it was really fun it was a really fun film we watched that again in the wake of our disneyland paris trip where sam was absolutely freaking out about all of the jules verne stuff in the park so yeah completely Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea as soon as you see even when they're in whitmore's office and he's like here's the ship you're going to be traveling in yeah. i was like oh it is basically the nautilus that is what we're working <laughs> with here yeah, so I love those movies, but this is like that. It's that aesthetic, it's that tone, it's that setting, but we have the budget to do big, crazy CGI action sequences, which the fight with the Leviathan absolutely is. And I would have liked to spend a little bit more time on the ship, a little bit more time getting to know the characters, and a little bit more time fighting freaky sea things. I think Atlantis comes a bit too soon, but you know, also the design of the world of Atlantis is great. Kidder is a great character, so I'm glad that we'll meet them when we do, that we'll get to spend plenty of time with them. But yeah, I would have liked a little bit more undersea shenanigans, which was planned. There's a longer version of this movie where they do encounter more obstacles on the way there. I think I was ready for Atlantis, actually. I think I was ready for us to get there, because like you said, it is... It's doing a lot, this film. It's packing a lot in, you know. So even on the way to Atlantis, there's stuff that happens. There's, like, conflict that they have to overcome. And then when we get to Atlantis, it's like this beautiful, majestic place, but not like its former self. You know, we get that hint. And, yeah, it was really cool as well to have a female character be the main protagonist in Atlantis and see her have agency as well her relationship with her father i think it was quite interesting because she is open and she's progressive and she's kind of a reformist so she wants to like have these conversations she wants to bring atlantis back to its former glory you know so she's somebody that's all about action you know she's not just there to look pretty and I think complement the male characters. So yeah, she's she's a really cool character and I was happy to see her when we got there. But also because I'm fascinated by history and historical landscapes, I was just like, oh, this is really nice actually. <laughs> 
to like be in the physical space of Atlantis and what it looks like and the sort of power of it, but also the power of what it could potentially be and people talking about this life source, you know, like the mystery of this life source. I was like, well, what is this? And what did it do for them? And and how have they come to be in a place where they don't access it in the same way? But then also there's a like a spiritual element to that as well, because it's it's healing. So the life source has multiple functions and that is mythic. That is both historical and new. You know, these elements of the historical and the sci-fi-ishness of it, mixing the two together. I found that really interesting. Like, oh, how have they done this? Because sometimes I felt like I'm watching a sci-fi film, but no, I'm watching a historical narrative as well. So yeah, I think they, they're playful. They're experimental with this, which I quite like. It feels like a real blend of different influences, right? Because it feels like once we get to Atlantis, you know, the the place looks incredible. But as you say, there's this power and this whole history and community in this place. And it feels like they are drawing from various different ideas of indigenous communities from various places. So I think we'll probably end up talking about this and especially Kida in relation to how Disney handled Pocahontas. That was their attempt at telling an indigenous story with mixed results, as we discussed on that episode. At the same time, what this reminded me of as a viewer now is absolutely elements of Wakanda, if we're talking about Black Panther. And in Wakanda Forever, Talakan, the nation that Namor leads, the kind of undersea world that is drawing from Mesoamerican cultures. Which in the Marvel comics is just called Atlantis. Right. So in the comics, Namor is from Atlantis. They kind of reworked that for Wakanda Forever, for the film. It feels like such a mix of all those different things. And so it's not drawing from one place in particular. It's kind of swirling all these influences together, or that's how it kind of feels as a viewer to it now. And it struck me like, oh, that's a really interesting link to something like... Black Panther and its sequel in the idea of like here is a world that has not been colonized by Europeans like that is the whole thing of Wakanda and of Talakan as well it's like we are protecting ourselves from outsiders this is a land that has been allowed to flourish in its own right with its own technologies and has its own really distinctive culture and aesthetic and that felt like how we see Atlantis here as well. That Kida understands bits of other languages, but that's because the languages share a sort of root language. It's not because they've actually had any contact with the rest of the world, and that gives this place its own power and its own very distinctive sense of community. Well, that's been central to a lot of historical accounts of Atlantis, is that it is this cradle of civilization. Like, it isn't quite like Wakanda, which is an area that's being allowed to flourish untouched by Western colonialism, this is somewhere which existed and developed all of this technology thousands of years ago, and all of modern culture from all over the world descends from the people of Atlantis. And I think they've really gone in on this in this film. That's why the language has multiple sources, the architecture has multiple influences. And I think that's why the people are dark-skinned with white hair. Right, So it, it immediately, in doing that, divorces them from any race of people who actually exist on the Earth. It's not saying Atlantis is, is a place where everyone looks like ancient Greeks, where everyone looks European. And it's not either saying that these are basically like indigenous Americans whose island happened to break off and fall into the sea. It's a separate 
race which is you know doesn't have any real world correlation but which you can see other real life races could be descended from yeah no absolutely it's funny i was thinking a similar thing like looking at the physical appearance of the atlanteans um and you brought up a really good point saying that yes they're brown skin but you can't really identify like okay is it specifically about this race of people or this race? And I thought that that was quite clever, but also it's Disney are clearly making an attempt to, to comment on things like the colonial rule and the experiences of being other and ethnicized and what indigenous people go through, you know, that thing of being looked at under the white gaze and how that is portrayed, you know, who is the gaze? What power do they have? And how are you being seen through that white gaze? You know, so I thought, okay, this is this is interesting. What a Disney movie is doing this. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was quite I was quite surprised by that. I mean, not that it dug deep into that, but it's there. And I thought that that was quite bold for a Disney movie to to do that. And yeah, I can definitely see those correlations with what Black Panther was trying to do in like both movies, this idea of black or indigenous civilizations and wanting to protect that, wanting to protect the sense of agency that they've cultivated essentially from, you know, like from keeping themselves separate. Because as we see uh, when they arrive, Kidder's dad says, well, you know the rule. The rule is that people who pass through don't survive because we have to protect ourselves. Because once that colonial influence comes through that changes everything and we sort of lose our our power and our influence and our sense of agency so yeah I mean it's really really interesting again like touching on all of those themes I thought it could have been even braver to push it a bit more right. and just be a bit more politically charged in terms of that kind of commentary I thought they backed off a bit if I'm honest yeah it's like it's so close it went there but then didn't fully go there it pulls back a bit and the fact that you're talking about the white gaze the fact that Milo really is still at the center of this story and he's the one who rocks up and he's suddenly like I'll make all your technology work it's like yeah it's the savior thing <laughs> right it's white savior so the characters like it's cool that the characters aren't white to have this like high-tech, extremely powerful civilization, and they're not just white people. That's interesting and it's different. But then the flip side of that is it makes this a white saviour story (laughs) because our our protagonist is white. Exactly. Yeah, he can make the technology work. He teaches them how to read their own language, language, right? Dude. I was like, what are you doing? That is very white saviour-y. I have to say, (laughs) I did roll my eyes at that. I was like, oh, Jesus. (laughs) Because how... The idea, okay, if like generations had passed and they've sunk beneath the ocean, they've lost all their power, maybe you could buy the fact that they've forgotten how to read this language. But generations haven't passed. Kidder is thousands of years old. No one has died. Well, people have probably died because everything's sunk under the water. But the characters who we see alive in Atlantis today have been living there since before it sank. So how has the ability to read their own language supposed to have left them? Mm. Like what, she forgot? These characters forgot over a thousand years how to read? But there's writing everywhere. How would that happen? So that feels like such an artificial, needless detail. Like there are other ways in which you could have helped them, you know? Uh, rather than than teaching them how their own machines work, teaching them how their own language works. It's so needlessly playing into that white saviour trope. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in a way, it's also lazy as well. (laughs) It's like, 
be a bit more ambitious if you're gonna do the white savior thing like at least flip it or take it in a different direction you know which they kind of didn't do um exactly what you said about him teaching them how to read their own language it's it's just it's centering again that white gaze and in a way i think if you look at it from an from the perspective of i guess the studio and people making the film they're thinking about okay this is still a disney animation and it still needs to appeal to different audiences so perhaps that could be the reason for that it's like we know that all sorts of audiences love disney movies and it took a long time for us to have people of color centered as like main protagonists but even when we are included there is still like this compromise i feel there is still like this caveat okay yeah you're included however we're still going to center the white gaze and it's still going to be the white protagonist and he's not you know we've talked about milo like he is he can be annoying but he's well-intentioned but it's still slightly problematic isn't it in that sense i mean it feels like at least in some ways a bit of a step forward from pocahontas where pocahontas herself in that film is actually characterized really well and she has a lot of agency and she really kind of drives that narrative obviously it runs into a lot of problems in the fact that it is dealing with a real history that it subverts for its own ends and in centering this romance between Pocahontas and John Smith and it all starts to fall apart it's like no 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 what are you doing this one at least it's not playing with like a specific culture or real life people and you can take some of that storytelling license there I mean I thought Kidda was actually characterized in a very similar way to Pocahontas in that she clearly is very active and capable and she has this dynamic with her father where you know he's very traditional and she's trying to solve the mystery of what's happened to the power of Atlantis I think this feels like a middle point between what they've started and fumbled a bit with Pocahontas and where they get to later on with characters like Moana like Raya from Raya and the Last Dragon, where in more recent times, again, we're going to look back on this in years to come and be like, ah, they fell into these traps. But as we see it now, some of those more recent characters, they have solved some of the issues that they fall into, I think, with with Pocahontas and with Kida, who, you know, she has a lot going on for herself, but inevitably her story in this ends up being quite tightly tied to what is happening with Milo. Maybe less of a romantic connection or an overtly romantic connection as you got with Pocahontas and John Smith in that film. Yeah, I didn't see Pocahontas, so it's really interesting to hear that it sounds like they learn from that. I'm assuming that there was probably some criticism around, like, the probably quite a lot. And And it feels like Disney have taken that on board and they've improved, you know, just in terms of their portrayals of Indigenous people and people of colour. Like, it's not perfect, but we're making strides with some of the films that you've mentioned, which is good. It reminds me of some of the criticisms that people, including me, have of, like, Avatar as well, which is, like, this is still a story about colonisers. It's still a story about a white saviour, even if it's, like, blue aliens, because the lines that are being drawn between those blue aliens and real life indigenous cultures are so clear and obvious that it's like you are still 
propagating this narrative even though it's science fiction i think here you're still propagating this narrative even though it again it's science fiction it, it's not like a real world country or a real world race and i think if they are using whether in avatar or atlantis if they are using aesthetics that have been derived from real world cultures that have a history of being victims of colonialism then they also have a responsibility to treat those cultures seriously in terms of the colonial narratives that they're telling in the movies. Like, don't use these cultural touchstones as just set dressing for your fantasy world. If you're telling a story that is referencing these people, acknowledge these people's history of of exploitation. And, you know, this is a movie where the colonisers, the plunderers are the villains, but, yeah, it doesn't hold Milo account for, like, the role that he has played in this or for the ways in which he's kind of, like, patronising or, in, in his own way exploiting the people of Atlantis either. Yeah, there is so much to unpack here. As you say, then even from a narrative level, it's bringing in this whole crew of characters, exploring Atlantis and its history, and then we head into the final act of the film where I was expecting that uh, Rourke and the blonde lady, that they were bad news. I didn't actually expect that it was going to be that the whole crew was in on it from the beginning and they were all there for kind of less than honorable reasons did did that catch anybody else off guard yeah <laughs> that that hit me hard man like obviously those bad guys are the bad guys but like kooky's got a shotgun like kooky's pointing <laughs> a shotgun at, at milo what's, what's that about like what about mole yeah when i was a kid it was like mole i would never have expected <laughs> ulterior mortals from this freak <laughs> it was a shock yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, I'm the same. I, I felt gutted. I was like, oh, I, I thought he connected with these band of outliers. Yeah, we knew we knew that Rourke and his um, co-conspirator, the film fatale lady, I call her. Helga. We've, we've got to say Helga. Helga. I've known the name the whole time. You guys have just been calling her the blonde woman. It's Helga. Helga. We knew they were dark uh, and mm-hmm. not yeah. trustworthy at all, but it was kind of gutting, actually. But it was also, I think, good storytelling because it was a twist. You know, it was it was a surprise because you're sort of going along and you're invested and then that happens and I sort of caught my breath. I was like, oh, oh my goodness. Not all of you. This is hitting me hard, man. Um, yeah. yeah, I was taken by surprise by that. And I felt quite sorry for Milo in that moment because it's like, you know, that moment when you feel that people like you genuinely and then yeah. you discover that actually not really... <laughs> they've had other intentions all along he's been a big nerd his whole life and now suddenly he's got mates for the first time it's took him a while to win them round but now it's like oh no we're gonna put a shotgun at you (laughs) and also do a genocide at the same time it's It's uh, a lot to take in right (laughs) really bad combo bad day for milo too kooky (laughs) (laughs) and obviously then when we head into the final reel when we head into that action finale Pretty quickly, the rest of the crew comes round to Milo's way, and it does become really a showdown against Rourke and Helga, who, it's terrible, they trap Kida in a box, and they're going to just yoink her back up to dry land and, and exploit her power. But we get this really great action sequence where they're trying to take down the, the sort of Zeppelin balloon craft that Rourke and Helga are using to try and get Kida out of there. At the same time, then... Obviously, Kidder is broken out of that, and she is fully powered up. She is like a glowing blue entity in a way that I'm like, it feels like a modern Disney movie in that there is so much mythology here. I don't actually 
fully understand what happened at the end of this film in terms of quite how the power works and why she's the chosen one like her mum was and now she's glowing blue but it's extremely cool and i can just vibe with how cool it looks that she is yeah glowing bright blue she looks like an x-man or something very phoenix isn't it very phoenix yeah yeah she's like incandescent glowing you know and exactly that i was like okay hold on she's been how was she chosen like <laughs> i felt like i had i missed some uh, moments of storytelling um because it all happened really quickly and quite mm-hmm. intensely and then she's absorbed into that power source isn't she and then like you said we see her like completely blue and there's something very futuristic about her look at the end actually um that i thought okay this is really really striking they plan to completely just use her and that's so there's a lot happening there's her being the chosen one there's her being absorbed by the power <laughs> there's you know the baddies taking her hostage to to use her and all i'm like okay what's milo gonna do is he just gonna let this happen but since he's the you know he's a main protagonist obviously he's gonna like try to redeem himself in some way um even though it's not entirely his fault like we do see him being upset that all of this is happening and questioning what they're doing and being visibly angry so all of that is good but i love it when we see i don't know what they're called the robotic sea creatures rise up flying fish guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> these guys come in there's the flying fish guys but then there's also like the big iron giant guys yeah, who live in the those, water and they come up as well they come up and it's just like this is both mythological and biblical and futuristic yeah. all at once and like they're really going for it with this ending here that that's another layer of the law which is like it didn't need to be there but i'm kind of glad it was and i get it like oh there's giant robots in the ocean as well <laughs> you're like, invested, are gonna... <laughs> you're invested yeah. so you're like it, you're in the world aren't you uh, yeah give me giant robots whatever are they gonna do anything not particularly <laughs> but they're there. they're there they're gonna look cool <laughs> and it looks cool you know so yeah there's uh, so much happening visually but i do i like the action like it, it felt like they there was a sense of urgency about it. I mean, that's it. The, the Leviathan fight and then the fight at the end, which culminates in that scrap on the balloon. Those are really, really good action mm. sequences. And the balloon in particular, again, that's given us like Jules Verne. It's given us Island at the Top of the World, those older Disney movies as well, but in a much more high-tech, visually impressive way. So yeah, that is, it's a cool way to end a movie, which maybe promises more action than it gives, but the action that it does give is, is top-notch. And for all that we've said that this is very Milo-centric, Kida is the one who quite literally shines at the end. She is like the all-powerful being. I'm glad that they give her that power to shine through the finale, you know? Uh, so much so that Milo's like, I'm staying. I'm not going back home. I'm staying with the glowing blue lovely lady. This is where I belong now. I mean, I, I think he missed the point of his own film, but... I'm happy for him. As long as he doesn't try and change anything on Atlantis, then, you know, just wind your neck in a bit, Milo. Wind your neck in. Well, she's the boss in the dynamic, isn't she? Yeah. I think, in their relationship. She's the one with the power. And I and I feel like he'd be quite content with that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's just been very impressive. Who wouldn't be? <laughs> a really good vocal performance on Killer by Cree Summer. Oh, who's like, she's brilliant. Yeah, and she's like a voice acting legend. She's really prolific. But this is, I think, her only role as like a main character in a, in a big feature-length oh, movie. Oh, wow. Like Susie from the Rugrats is, is yeah, one of the most famous roles. Yeah, she's so great roles. in that. Yeah, no yeah. way. Yeah, it's like probably like the 
most prominent black American voice actress. Yeah. So clearly this is a decision where do I cast someone famous? No, I think we've got someone who can really, really handle this role and all of the demands in the voice acting industry. And I think that's a great choice. But also I have to point out, because a lot of people are, are very salty about this, Kida is not an official Disney princess, right? Mm. She's not on the merchandise. Yeah, She's not up there in true. the theme parks and on the pencil cases with Belle and, and Ariel and Elsa and all of that. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's because she's too powerful, mm. she's too strong, and she's not like feminine in that traditional Western way that the Disney princess brand is designed to, to build off of. I think, quite rightly, the other Disney princesses would just be completely jealous of her. Cinderella's yeah. like, yeah. why didn't I become a glowing blue entity at the end of my <laughs> film? I, I was friends with all the mice. Where's my glowing blue powers? <laughs> it's funny, actually, watching this, I never once thought of her in the princess vein and i think that's a massive compliment to her as a character and also kree's work as a voice actress as well you know right really bringing her to life and giving her these dimensions um but no she's radical and she's quite badass and she's got a lot of power particularly by the end so yeah i'm not surprised by that actually i'm not surprised that she's not seen as a sort of typical disney princess uh, it is actually a testament to an actress whose most famous character is like a two-year-old child, <laughs> but is also able to play this, like the most mature and, and powerful of the Disney princesses. That is range. That is incredible Absolutely. range. Okay, then, now that we're back on dry land, that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark, strange stuff that didn't make it into the film. Sam, I don't know if there is, like, a core Atlantis myth. We touched on this earlier on. Maybe there isn't a specific story that Disney have drawn on here, but could there have been a wildly different version of the Lost Empire somewhere? Yeah, I mean, they are drawn on various accounts of the Atlantis myth. Like, there's this guy called Edgar Case, who was a clairvoyant from the early 1900s. Of course he was, he sounds great. <laughs> when he would, like, do his clairvoyant shtick, he would claim that many of his subjects were Atlanteans in their past lives. Like, oh, another Atlantean, okay, great. <laughs> like, it would get boring eventually. So he described the city in detail based on those conversations, and he said that's where the idea of a giant power crystal comes from, because some past-life Atlanteans told Edgar Case about that. So what, he was doing, like, shows where he was doing clairvoyance for people, and then he just came up with this whole, like, crystal myth. And that's... Not crystal meth, crystal myth. And that's why we have it in this Disney film. Maybe there was crystal meth involved. Yeah, exactly. Just this charlatan making shit up. It's like, what was that? It's like Nightmare Alley, but he's talking about, like, Atlantis every time. And he also said that there was uh, death rays and psychic powers, and there's a room hidden under the Sphinx, which contains ancient records of Atlantis's existence. So those are things that didn't make it into the movie. And he also said that Atlantis was going to resurface in the 1960s. <laughs> Who else kind of wants to hang out with this guy? <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of stuff that was left on the cutting room floor for this movie, the original draft would have been about an hour longer. An hour longer? Because this film, sorry to interrupt, but this film is like already, we're getting at the point where these Disney films are getting a bit longer. For a long time, they were like 70, 80 minutes, creeping up towards an hour and a half. This one's just over an hour and a half. In what world would this have been two and a half hours long? That's bonkers. Well, 
they mainly cut stuff from that section that I said I would like to see longer, where they are journeying to Atlantis. There was going to be more material with the supporting cast. There was going to be a bigger supporting cast. There was going to be a phony mystic, possibly based on Edgar Case. <laughs> Mr. Whitmore's stupid nephew, that's a quote, was going to be a character, and Milo was going to have a pet rat called Plato, oh. in reference to the, the Greek guy. So these characters were all cut to focus more on, on Milo himself. I would have liked the rat. This film misses out on like weird little guys, potential Disney versity legends. I feel like they could have been more like critters in this film do you agree Irenison? yeah i would have loved a little rat a little talking rat <laughs> <laughs> that milo could confide in <laughs> well you love ratatouille so that makes sense yeah, it lives exactly. under his hat that's the one who's really doing all the translations <laughs> well you're gonna love atlantis too exciting so they also cut a prologue scene which was going to so instead of the, the prologue that we get with Atlantis's destruction it was going to be further in the future after Atlantis has sunk where the Vikings are trying to invade oh. and they were going to be dispatched by the Leviathan and it was going to be a more Leviathan centric thing but it was decided that instead they should introduce Kidder in the prologue so Gary Trousdale storyboarded the new prologue on a napkin in a strip club as you do what? <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> you don't want to picture the directors of Beauty and the Beast in a strip club? Well, what? how has that gone down on record? Did they like admit in an interview that that's where yeah. they came up with this? I was just going to say that. Did, was that openly? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? That's crazy. And uh, maybe the maddest thing that they got rid of, Milo was originally intended to be a descendant of Blackbeard. The pirate? Yeah. I think Blackbeard, it was, his real name was Edward Teach, and Thatch feels like it's only slightly removed from that, so maybe that's part of the genesis of that name, was that Blackbeard was going to be involved, as if this movie needed anything else going on. <laughs> like, there is not just Atlantean law, but Milo law as well. <laughs> I feel like that would have been even more of a Sam Summers film if this also somehow included Disney pirates. It, they're just angling for you here with everything. Anything else for Discarded? Nope, that will do. That's enough from that. I mean, yeah, an extra hour with Vikings and pirates and a talking rat. Okay, I kind of want to see that. Give wow, me that version. Yeah, I feel like I want to see that, actually. <laughs> so let's go to the reviews. What did critics say about this film? Was it liked? Disney is in a weird point in history at this time. Uh, were people into this film or still not feeling it? So some of the critics were more positive than others. Uh, Roger Ebert said that the story of Atlantis is rousing in an old pulp science fiction sort of way and the climactic scene transcends the rest and stands by itself as one of the great animated action sequences, which I agree with. But there were lots of negative reviews and much like every episode of this podcast, nearly every negative review mentioned Shrek, which had come out just a month before. And uh, they were just talking about how outdated... Atlantis looks in comparison so the Washington Post says ironically Disney had hoped to update its image with this mildly diverting adventure but the picture hasn't really broken away from the tried and true format spoofed in the far superior Shrek I would say it's nothing like the format spoofed in Shrek I think that's madness uh, we've already talked about all the ways in which it isn't Entertainment Weekly said that the real Lost Empire might almost be the day that hand-drawn animation in the conventional Disney style could still saturate us with wonder. 
And the LA Times said that it plays more like the best Disney animated film of 1981 than 2001. Ooh, that feels like a sly dig there, because the 80s were not kind to Disney in general. But (laughs) that is interesting, because people are noting, obviously, yeah, this is the same year that Shrek comes out. It is different to Shrek in every way, and at the time, Shrek would have felt so new. But then watching this now, kind of the beauty of it is... The animation, the like hand-drawn characters, as I mentioned before, and the whole visual style of this probably felt maybe a bit passe at the time. But as I watch this now, I'm like, oh, I kind of wish we still got films that looked like this. And I think part of the issue might be that even the things that I knew for Disney are still very old-fashioned. Right? Like, we haven't seen this in a Disney animated movie before. We've seen it in live action Disney movies before. We've been living in worlds like this in science fiction literature for decades. Um, So I I think maybe it feels old fashioned in that way as well as in the animation style that's being used. Yeah, I remember seeing Shrek and and loving that as well. But it's really interesting that a lot of people were comparing it to Shrek. It's so different. And like you said, it, it feels like. In Disney's catalogue, there is space for, like, both types of film, really. Like, you know, this kind of older style and what for Shrek would have been quite groundbreaking. Um, I think that this film, it's still a story well told. And visually, I think it's still quite imaginative in a way. So it's really, it. I, I was quite surprised by, like, some of the bad reviews. Like, some of them weren't surprising, but... I was wondering whether it's like the expectations of Disney fans, whether people were disappointed in some way that, you know, this to me feels like it was pushing the boundaries in its own way in terms of the storytelling and what it was trying to cover. So I was just curious to like hear some of the reviews about it because I'm like, oh, wow, okay, these are the things that people were upset about. Yeah, I think a lot of the comparisons to Shrek just come from the fact that, especially back then, animation was just seen as one thing and it's all just animation and there's not room in it for these kinds of divergences and these movies that are aimed at slightly different audiences as well. Like, it feels like this skews older than most Disney animated movies. And you can see, after the fairy tale musical thing started to die off at the end of the 1990s, not only at Disney, but at other studios as well who'd started to copy Disney that one of the things that they try is sci-fi action movies. So you've got the comedy movies like Shrek and Emperor's New Groove, these postmodern comedies, but you've also got this, Titan A, Treasure Planet in a couple of Disney movies' time, uh, The Iron Giant as well, these very like retro-inspired sci-fi adventure movies. That was another direction aimed at more mature audiences as well, I think, that Disney tried to go in and that the public just didn't buy. And other studios tried to go in that direction and they just didn't do as well commercially as the comedy stuff, so that's where the animation industry went. And for some reason, there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect in terms of the kind of movies that animators want to make and the kind of movies the audience is going to be receptive to in the sense that the movie that this suggested I watch after Atlantis on Disney Plus was Strange World, Disney's most recent animated film from last year, which bombed really, really hard. And there was a lot of factors at play there. But this does just seem to be a genre that people keep trying and just doesn't keep landing. Yeah, and Strange World, we're going to get there. I think it's really good. I think that is a good film. And it very much feels like it's in this lineage. But... Very few people went to see it, and I get the sense, Sam, that very few people went to see this. So what were the box office numbers for Atlantis? Did it sink? I can't believe it's taken me so long to go there. (laughs) 
So it made $84 million domestic and $186 million worldwide. That's a little better than The Emperor's New Groove. Okay. But it's way worse than Dinosaur and way worse than any of the the major Renaissance films. And Shrek had been out for a month by this point, so it was still making almost as much money as Atlantis was week on week. So clearly, if you're taking a kid to the cinema, unless you're my parents and I've seen Shrek many times already, you are going to see Shrek instead of Atlantis. And there's a very sad quote from Kirk Wise who says... The movie business and the public are having a love affair with computer animation. Any traditional animator, including myself, can't help but feel a twinge. And I think it comes down to story and character. And one form won't replace the other. Just like photography didn't replace painting. But maybe I'm blind to it. And I think it was kind of blind to it. Because this style of of feature filmmaking in an American big budget Hollywood context was really not long for this world. So... What do we think of this film then? Erinison, I'm going to come to you first. What star rating would you give Atlantis? I would give it three and a half. I think it's good. I thought it was entertaining and quite immersive. I thought it was playful in its intentions of like mixing sci-fi adventure with the historical. I like the fact that Kidda, the main female protagonist, has agency and power and is somebody indigenous. I think that that's you know, pushing the boundaries for Disney. So yeah, and I just love some of the action scenes. I was like, oh, this is this is what I needed to watch this week. <laughs> you know, it's like that pacey action scenes and the narrative is moving forward quite quickly. There's a lot to contend with. Some of it goes over your head. Some of it you need to sort of like ruminate over later. But for the most part, it's got magic. It's got history. It's mythic. And I think it does deliver. There's no songs in it. And it's funny, I didn't even notice that until you said it. I was like, oh my God, yeah. (laughs) A Disney movie without songs. But I didn't even notice that. So for me, I thought it was entertaining. I I I liked it quite a bit, yeah. It's problematic in some ways. It's not perfect, but it's good for what it does. I'm right there with you on the three and a half out of five. That would be my rating as well. I thought it was very cool, incredibly cool, loved the look of it, loved the action, really liked the Mike Mignola designs, loved how all the chips looked and just the whole feel of it I thought was really great. It just lacked a bit of heart for me. I didn't like feel anything emotionally watching this and I have to say I missed the songs. It's not that kind of film, but if they'd have snuck a couple of songs in there, especially knowing how well Trousdale and Wise used music in Beauty and the Beast and in Hunchback of Notre Dame, I kind of would have liked them to go three for three on the musicals. But for what we get here, yeah, three and a half from me. What about you, Sam? Where are you going? I'm going three and a half as well. I think it could have done with that extra hour. That's genuinely how I feel. Give it an epic length to match its epic scope. Have more encounters in the ocean. Have more action scenes in Atlantis. Spend more time with those supporting characters. There aren't really Western animated movies like that that go on for that long that treat us to that kind of epic scope, especially not not just yet, like some of the, the later Pixar films would get there. But um, yeah, make it feel long, make it feel expansive, and that would leave room for a song. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, very long movie, not a musical, but there's a fantastic sequence where Kirk Douglas is dancing around with a seal on top of the board and he's singing a song. He's just singing a sea shanty. And it's not a a musical sequence. It's not like it doesn't break the story world or anything, but it's just like 
yeah, give someone a guitar, give Vinny a guitar, and have him dance around and sing a sea shanty. Everyone can join in, including play it or the rat. Yes. And there's your, there's your song. And it's just a fun little diversion. Give us the rat. Give oh, us the rat. I love the rat. That would have been great, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Good shout out, yeah. <laughs> okay, then. It's time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there's a whole universe for each character. Sam, what is the lasting legacy of Atlantis? So, the first thing we've got to talk about is the sequel, Atlantis, Milo's Return from 2003, straight to video. And the first thing I should mention about that is that there is not a rat, but Kidder has a pet called Obby. And Obby is sort of a fat little dinosaur who lives in lava and he eats rocks and he's got a big long tongue. (laughs) And he he sticks his big tongue out and he eats rocks and he lives in lava and he's called Obby and he's a fat little dinosaur. And that about sums him up. We haven't named a Disney Versity legend for for Atlantis the Lost Empire, but maybe we can have Obby as an honorary (laughs) uh, legend from Atlantis Milo's Return. So... Most of the Disney sequels follow one of a couple of formats, right, of structures, formulas. There are the ones where it's set in the middle of the movie. There are the ones where it's about the characters as kids. There's the ones where it's about the characters having kids. And there's the ones where it's three episodes of a TV show that never got made that they've jammed into one. (laughs) And I was quite pleasantly surprised as this movie started to think, oh, it's not really fallen into any of those old tropes it's just another adventure with the guys from atlantis so the old gang come back to atlantis to recruit milo and keda because there's a crisis on the surface there's reports of a kraken which they pronounce kraken in this it's a kraken kraken there's a kraken (laughs) there's a kraken out there wrecking ships right and they're going to get the Atlantis guys back because for some reason they think the Kraken might have ties to Atlantis. I guess it looks like the Leviathan. Okay. So it's Kiddo, it's Milo, it's all of those mercenaries and they're going to go and sort this out. And it's quite cheap animation, but there's some decent action scenes and atmosphere. They go to this creepy Norwegian fishing village where everyone is possessed by the Kraken. So the Kraken has like mind powers and it's, <laughs> it's taken everyone in this town under its control. Oh, wow. That's properly nuts. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually... They destroy the Kraken, and I think, man, that wasn't so bad for a Disney sequel. It flew by. I have a look at the timer. It's only been 20 minutes. It's three episodes of an unproduced TV show. This is what the Kraken thing was one story. (laughs) It finished, and now we've got to watch another two low-budget, low-effort stories because apparently they wanted to make a TV show called Team Atlantis where the gang solve a different, like, supernatural mystery in a different part of the world every week, but then the movie bombed. They cancelled the show and they jammed the three episodes that they'd finished together to make this. I was really fuming. (laughs) Those cobbled together from TV episode films, they are so bad. They're so hard to get through. Any other decent stories in there beyond that? I can't get over Kraken. That is is going to live in my brain forever. That that sounds quite wild, actually. The the possession element as well. (laughs) Like, what is going on? Well, the other two stories are quite wild. So they go on these little mini adventures where they travel to the surface to investigate vaguely, like, pulpy atlantis adjacent mysteries there's one where they go to the arizona desert and fight an army of coyotes made out of sand okay fair enough and there's another one where they have to avert ragnarok oh the norse apocalypse 
That's yeah. crazy. D- does Thor turn up? No, but Odin is there. Oh. Or there's this guy who, like, it's like, is he Odin or does he just believe that he's Odin? Oh. But either way, he's going to do a Ragnarok, and which is quite high stakes yeah. for the Atlantis gang. Definitely. And they've got to shut that down. And then at the end of the movie, there's this, like, little epilogue where... Kida decides that Atlantis has been isolated for too long and raises it out of the ocean so that it can share its secrets with the world, which is the ending of Black Panther. Yeah. Wow. So there's the reference that you mentioned heavily. Okay. That's where they got it from. Wow. That's where that, that, I don't, that's probably not true, but like <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. No, no, no. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The Marvel guys have been watching both Atlantis movies. <laughs> if you go on Ryan Coogler's Letterbox right now, they're like, not many people saw the second Atlantis movie. So we can get away with that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the movie. It's not one of the worst ones. It's probably the best of those it's cobbled together from three TV episodes because they do manage to give it a bit of a through line and it does have like a definitive ending. And yeah, it's 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 just other like steampunky Jules Verne threats that they've got to face, which is is fun to see. There are not many other Atlantis last and legacy installments because their movie didn't do very well so a lot of the things that were planned were cancelled one example is a Disneyland ride uh, which was going to be called Fire Mountain and this appropriately enough was an idea that was pitched to replace an old ride 20,000 Leagues Submarine Voyage where you get on little submarines and go through some scenes from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and The original pitch to replace this was still based on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and it was going to be a journey through the volcano base on Captain Nemo's island home of Vulcania. But eventually someone realised that possibly the reason why the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ride isn't that popular is because no one has seen 20,000 Leagues (laughs) Under the Sea anymore. So this was changed to a voyage to Atlantis, which has to make an emergency detour through a volcano, because that's what happens in theme parks. You get on a ride, (laughs) and you're off to see something really cool, but then there's an emergency detour, and something goes wrong, and you end up in danger. That's a classic theme park move. But when the movie failed, it was cancelled. So they committed to the volcano thing because of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but then they were like, our Atlantis ride, which everyone is going to associate with water, is going to be called, like, what, Fire Journey? Fire Mountain. (laughs) I I think it's probably for the best that this didn't happen. It didn't happen? (laughs) Did not happen. The other pitch for this location was a log flume based on the night on Bald Mountain from Fantasia, which would have obviously been incredible. Churna boats, anybody? (laughs) And again, in California, there were plans to retheme the submarine voyage with Atlantis rather than replace it with a different ride. Uh, But eventually that was canned as well because the movie didn't do very well. And another undersea film did do very well, a film called Finding Nemo, a movie which, unlike Atlantis and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, does not involve submarines, but they made Finding Nemo submarine voyage anyway. (laughs) So you're on some submarines and you're you're travelling through the world of Finding Nemo. And the Nemo fish are there. And weirdly, because the original 20,000 Leagues submarine voyage had like a generic ancient Greece-style Atlantis set in the background, you still go through Atlantis. So, <laughs> on the Nemo So ride. it's finding Nemo, yeah. but you're on a submarine <laughs> and you go through Atlantis before you get to Crush and, and, and Dory and all your friends. 
Which park is that in? Is that in OG Disneyland in California? That's in Disneyland in California. The one that never got built in any sense was Fire Mountain. That was in Florida, I think. Oh, man. We've got to try and go on that one day, the the submarine Finding Nemo ride. That sounds terrible. That sounds bonkers. It is renowned as (laughs) the worst Disney ride currently open. (laughs) I'm not surprised by that. And that is it for this week's class. Irenison, have you enjoyed your time in the hallowed halls of Disneyversity? Thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure. Like, that flew by, and I feel like I learned so much through this process. But I also love deep diving into Disney again, which I haven't done for a while. So it just made me, like, harken back to days of my childhood. And that was, yeah, such a pleasure. Amazing. That is exactly what we're here for. Thank you so much for joining us and for being here with us. We've loved having you on this episode. Where can people find you online? And where can people find out more about Black to the Future? Yeah, so you can find more about me from my website, irenesonokoje.com. Irenison's quite an unusual name, so if you Google me, that will come up straight away, which is handy. And then for Black to the Future, yeah, if you Google that too, our website will come up with all the information about our programme, as well as exciting plans we have coming up. And yeah, we, we love hearing from people as well. So if people want to collaborate or talk to us about any ideas, we're really open to that. So yeah, please absolutely get in touch. Amazing. Well, join us again for our next seminar as we finally reach a Disneyversity milestone. After years, literally years of talking about it, of guests picking it as one of their very favourite Disney films, and me not being allowed to watch it until we reached it on the podcast, I am finally going to be allowed to see Lilo and Stitch. I cannot wait. I've been waiting so long at this point. Maybe I'll even watch Stitch Has a Glitch and Leroy and Stitch too, some of the uh, straight-to-DVD sequels. I'm just going to throw myself in at the deep end on this one. So, that is coming up next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating wherever you're listening to this, it really helps us get discovered by new listeners. We'd love it if you could do that. And if you do, we're going to power your home with glowing blue Atlantis energy and help save on some of your bills. For now, it's goodbye from Irenison. Bye from me. Thank you so much. It's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I am going to go and discover the cut of this film that has the adorable rat. Maybe it teams up with the chef. Who knows? Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.